We are parents, teachers, and educators. And like you, we're passionate about restoring our culture for Christ. This is Veritas Vox, the voice of classical Christian education. Hello again. I'm Marlon Detweiler, and you've joined us for another episode of Veritas Vox, the voice of classical Christian education. Today we have with us uh, a parent of former students of ours and dear friend, Paul Hadfield. Paul, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Uh, Paul has been uh, uh, a dear friend for quite a while and uh, has an interesting career background that uh, is uh, the reason we thought he'd be good and you all would enjoy hearing about him. Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, personally, your uh, growing up, family, educational background, and career. Well, uh, I grew up in uh, southeast Pennsylvania uh, to a Christian family. I was uh, very blessed that I've really not known a day without Christ in my life. I, that's a People call that a boring testimony. I consider that to be a blessing. I do, too. Um, my parents are actually still with us on the earth and uh, doing well. Uh, but I um, grew up in a Christian home, went to public high school. I went to public university here in Pennsylvania. And uh, career-wise, well, I'll take a step back. I'll never forget my first flight was with a, a relative. He was in the Coast Guard. Well, and, people don't know yet that you're connected to aviation, so uh, yeah, that's okay. I just want—I don't want you to assume something that they haven't yet heard. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we can go back to that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I then started a career as a public school teacher, and uh, I taught 12 years in the public school, and then um, felt the call of the Lord to uh, go into aviation, and. Um, for a while, I was just saving up money to get my pilot's license. I always wanted to fly. Uh, and I'll take a little step back to uh, in my elementary school years, my parents spent a year in Africa. And we spent a year there covering for a family that was on furlough. My parents were both teachers and they um, covered in a school to to take their classes and so that the, the folks had a had a respite or a sabbatical. So time in uh, small airplanes, flying around uh, remote places, um, but also uh, a touch of missions. So going back now off the rabbit trail, I um, after 12 years of teaching public school, I um, was, <laughs> there was a lot, of situa a lot of stuff that went on and God was calling me out of that. We'll just put it that way. And so uh, I went to Moody Bible Institute in Spokane, Washington, where their aviation school had just moved to. So our family, uh, I resigned from my position. Uh, my family moved from Pennsylvania all the way out to Washington State. We had to look on a map where Spokane was at first. <laughs> um, it's not in Seattle like most people think. Oh, it's very different. It's I've been Washington, there. <laughs> practically in Idaho. So um, spent four years in school at Moody. Uh, became an aircraft mechanic and a commercial pilot there, and their goal is to train missionary pilots. And so um, from there, we worked on the mission field. I, I, You uh, blipped a little bit. Can you roll back about 15 seconds? 
I don't know if it blipped for everybody else, but it did for me. You just blipped on me, actually. Okay. So, yeah, we've got a little bit of a spotty connection somewhere. Hopefully it'll resolve. Go ahead. So 15 seconds, what basically we're um, in Spokane. You want to just talk about that? Okay. Well, we moved to Spokane to for me to go to Moody Bible Institute's uh, Missionary Aviation Flight School. Uh, I gained my airframe and power plant mechanics license and my commercial pilot's license in preparation to go to the mission field. And then uh, we were looking at various fields uh, to serve on, and that is how we ended up uh, moving to Alaska after that. So you ended up moving. Did you move originally to the Kenai Peninsula? Is that where you moved when you first went there? Yes, we moved to the Kenai Peninsula from Spokane, Washington in um, 2010. And you were there as a pilot working for a, a bush pilot ministry called Arctic, Arctic Barnabas uh, for 10 years. Um, and the whole idea of being a bush pilot is something that uh, I think people have ideas about, but it was the reason I wanted to have you talk, because while you're in the Kenai Peninsula, living there, you have children in our program, and uh, we've gotten to know each other. I think our first introduction was probably when you were in Spokane. Uh, I don't remember if we met before then or not, but uh, we certainly uh, got to know uh, you then. But as a pilot in uh, the Kenai Peninsula, flying around Alaska, you're experiencing things that uh, are very different than most people know or understand about aviation. Um, what? Uh, tell us first, I guess, maybe about the ministry Arctic Barnabas. What? What's it there? What does it do? How does it serve in the mission field? Well. Let me read something off the website. Um, it says pastors and missionaries without a support system in place are struggling with the difficulties of ministry in remote Alaska. It's the vision of Arctic Barnabas that remote Alaska has a thriving gospel presence. People don't completely understand. There's a lot of uh, Alaska shows and they don't understand how big Alaska really is and how remote most of it is. And, you know, being a missionary, we had to share in churches. So some of the statistics, you can fit 14 Pennsylvanias inside of Alaska. <laughs> and they have like 1% of the roads in Alaska that Pennsylvania has. Wow. So you cannot get anywhere unless you fly or wait till everything freezes and Hope that your snowmobile doesn't break down on the way somewhere and you have enough gas. So it is extremely remote. And so flying is an essential service up there. And um, there are villages all over the state that a lot of them are along rivers. So a lot of people used rivers for transportation um, and also for sustenance, fish and whatnot. But... There's villages from 25 people up, and there's some hub villages, bigger ones of a couple thousand, um, but you can't get there unless you fly. And so there are families that are called to, to serve in those villages as either pastor families, missionary families, sure. 
um, church planters. Uh, some of them are teaching in the schools just to have uh, kind of a tent maker type ministry. And so it's extremely remote and it's very isolating. And you can imagine, I just checked uh, my friend who lives up in the interior. It's 40 below at his house this morning. That's below zero. That's when propane freezes. So wow. if you have a, if you were running propane to heat your house, which they don't, but um, it, it's frozen now. It will not work. So uh, it's cold. Uh, and we wouldn't fly in those temperatures. That's a little too cold. But um, but you think about the isolation. Yeah, the typical airplane doesn't like that temperature. It's certainly a, no. uh, a gas-powered typical, propeller plane. <laughs> a typical human doesn't like that temperature either. So no, that's true. <laughs> so... Um, anyways, it's uh, it's cold, it's remote, and, and there's a lot of isolation and loneliness that sets in with families and the children. And along with that, there's a lot of abuse in the villages. Um, the, there is a lot of alcohol abuse. There is sexual abuse. And so families can't let their children just go out and play all the time because there's safety concerns. And so um, having opportunity to interact with others um, is not always easy. You know, they're always doing it on their own, you know, with their families. And, and um, as the kids get older, it's better. But we as Arctic Barnabas tried to come along the families to encourage them, almost like um, a member care organization for multiple organizations. If they could agree with our very generic statement of faith, then we would, we would serve them. And we did lots of different things. Well, I split a lot of people's firewood. Um, we would just a lot of times just go out and spend time, talk. I drank a lot of coffee, you know, just <laughs> delivering a lot of food, um, just spending time with families. And that's uh, that's what we did is just to be there and be uh, an encouragement, uh, a listening ear to um, talk about the struggles and be able to pray for them. And then, you know, when somebody would mention something, hey, you know, well, we need to travel. And, you know, we heard a couple of things that they have a challenge of just getting packed up and ready to go. So uh, it was actually my wife said, you know, we want to go out and just help them because in the winter, you know, they have a summer freezer and a winter freezer. The summer freezer is inside typically. The winter freezer is outside and you don't turn it on. You know, but you, you need to keep the food, you know, inside a container. So they'll have, and so it's just simple things like moving an entire co the contents of a chest freezer, um, watching the kids while they're packing. They had five little kids, and so we just flew out and did that and just helped. And so that's a lot of the practical stuff that we would do, but we had to fly. Yeah. Well, I remember. It was, you were very gracious. I think it was 2017 or 2018 where I had reason to come to Anchorage for business. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out to you and asked uh, if I could come a little early and just spend time with you and learn about what you were doing. And uh, the Kenai Peninsula uh, is a relatively easy flight from the Anchorage airport. So you came and I believe a four-seater airplane and picked me up. We took off on a grass field, uh, flew and got a chance to see, oh, what's the big mountain called now? It's not Mount McKinley anymore. It's been renamed. Well, it's, it depends on who you ask. Okay. Uh, well, I don't, yeah, this is, 
I'm not trying to be political on this one, but uh, anyway, you flew me near the mountain. We got a chance to see it, and it was unbelievable. And then uh, you were very gracious to to show me around and introduce me to uh, uh, friends and politicians, my first experience in Alaska. But what was most impressive was just to hear the stories of what you were doing and really appreciate what it really means to be a missionary bush pilot and, and the kinds of services that you were talking about providing were, were truly uh, remarkable. Uh, and uh, how, uh, we actually have another bush pilot that's been flying. I think they're still there. You're obviously uh, not on the mission field anymore, but it, it's really been fun to be able to serve you all with uh, curriculum and uh, live classes in remote locations uh, like that. Um, what what are some of your fondest memories as a bush pilot? And then I'm going to ask you, this is a different question than one I mentioned I'd like to hear. Uh, I'd like to hear uh, a, maybe a, a story or two of some of the most harrowing experiences, because as a pilot, I know that flying in Alaska is one of the most dangerous places that people fly. And so I'm, I'm sure you've got some stories there too. Well, yeah, I do have some stories. And, um, but I'll, I'll take your first question first is what, what are some of the most enjoyable experiences? Uh, because I was one of the few pilots in our organization, I got to see pretty much everybody that we served because I was the driver. <laughs> and so I got to know a lot of people all over the state, and it's very different in different parts of the state, whether you go to Southeast Alaska, I'm sorry, more Southwest, um, up in the, the Northwest, you know, up in the interior where it, it's a very different culture and lots of, there's multiple different people groups. And so it's uh, very interesting. Um, the missionaries, the pastors, a lot of the struggles were the same, uh, but a different place. You know, and so um, just making dear friendships and and I mean, these folks I call, they're my lifetime friends. And so um, that to me was enjoyable. And a lot of times <laughs> pulling someone out of the village, I didn't get as much time to talk to them because they were exhausted and they usually slept all the way home. And that means that I was keeping it nice so that they could sleep. <laughs> um, sometimes the weather did not allow that, but, you know, we tried to make them as comfortable as possible. Um, but knowing that they're all relaxed enough to fall asleep because they were exhausted, that felt good too. Yeah. Um, harrowing experiences. I've had a couple of those. Um, the one I remember, I had dropped a family off in the interior, about a two-hour flight from Kenai. It was about 300 miles directly northwest. And I was coming home, and I'll never forget, it was it was on the 4th of July. And was I don't that know up why near Fairbanks that you were headed? No, it was way out. It was kind of in the area towards Nome. Okay. Uh, north Out northwest. So I'm coming across the Alaska Range. And it was summer. It was July 4th. And, you know, summer, we just, it doesn't really get dark. So the hardest thing to do is just be disciplined to go to bed um, when, when it's not even dark and the sun's not even close to setting. Those but, are the things that we just don't even understand uh, here in the um, lower 48. <laughs> a little a little rabbit trail. There was days we'd be, we, you know, you've been to our house there. We're working out in the yard doing a couple things, you know preparing for winter because we always talked there was two seasons winter and getting ready for winter and so <laughs> we're splitting firewood and getting stuff ready and 
I, I realize I'm kind of hungry. And I look at my watch, it's 1030 at night. We had oh, oh, oh. everybody's distracted doing stuff. So we thought, well, maybe we got to stop to eat. Um, <laughs> so stuff like that was just different. Um, but we we did enjoy it. Uh, but that day on the 4th of July, just coming back from uh, this village, I um, it was kind of a thunderstormy day in Alaska by Alaska standards. It's very different than down here, the thunderstorms. They do get them. That's how most of the fires start in Alaska, by lightning strikes. Okay. Um, but they're not like the huge lines of thunderstorms that we have coming across the country. There's really never a tornado associated with it, but there's a lot of turbulence. And one day I'm just trying to scoot between stuff and I got over the Alaska range. I was probably about 50 miles from home. And I, I remember I was at 17,000 feet and the plane I was flying at the time was not pressurized. So I have a, like in the hospital, I have an oxygen cannula on, I'm breathing oxygen and I'm by myself and I'm glad for that. And I got into some turbulence and some icing that um, was, well, it, it was so severe that I actually had the thought, I hope my family can do okay without me. And it was violent. And I remember looking at my altimeter, I was at 17,000 and it felt like a blink of an eye and I was at 20,000. I'm glad I went up and not down, but there was plenty of room between me and the mountain range, but still uh, it was incredible. This, the, the vertical speed, I don't know how fast it was because I'm, I'm just it trying to, to be thousands of feet per minute. Oh, it was incredible how fast I went up. So, and then uh, I could not get a hold of anybody on the radio because I'm picking up ice on the airplane. You've done, you've had that happen, but it's extremely loud when I'm getting incredible amount of ice and I'm flying a twin engine at the time. So I have an engine on each wing. And then in the middle of all that, one of my engines started to have what I call an RPM deviation, which means Looking back on it, I think it was actually ice on the intake, so it wasn't getting enough air. And as I was getting ready to pull a lever, because there's a, a there's always redundancies in aircraft, and so there's a lever I can pull to get air from a different location that's not picking up ice. All of a sudden, I'm out of it, and it's beautiful. And I'm looking at home in front of me, and I'm sitting there going, "Thank you, Lord," and I'm just. Praising the Lord that um, I'm out of that and I'm still in the air and I'm not upside down. And I'm actually, as we like to say, I have the dirty side down and the pointy end forward. <laughs> and I'm getting I'm and on the with, things going. <laughs> uh, they say when the fan stops running, the pilot gets really hot. So, <laughs> um, but anyways, then I finally got a hold of air traffic control and they knew me. I, I flew this route all the time. You know, we get it's a small community. They know me, they know my airplane. And they said, Hey, do you, do you need anything? And I told them over the radio, I am going to need a minute. And he he laughed over the radio. He said, okay, you got it. And then I just proceeded home. And uh, those were those days when, you know, my wife would say, how was, how was your day? I was like, it was good. <laughs> and that's just all we talk about. And we'll, we told the story later, but uh, years later, but you know, those are things that some people don't need to hear about. Yeah, it is. It is truly amazing. Uh, a friend of mine describes flying as hours and hours of sheer boredom, sometimes punctuated by moments of sheer terror. 
and oh, he's yeah. not a pilot, uh, <laughs> but he has flown a lot in uh, the right seat with pilot friends of his, and it is amazing the emotions and the things that you go through uh, in in times like that, and yeah. I can't, I just can't imagine. 10 years of flying in Alaska and some of the stories, that's just one of the stories I've heard you tell, uh, but uh, how remarkable it is. A wonderful place for a young man to train to be a pilot. You're now flying commercially for a charter service, Aerotech. I, I see it on yep. your name there. I know the business well. It's the uh, company with whom I trained to become a pilot. Uh, but you're in the charter side of things, and, and it is wonderful uh, to have a person like you uh, flying when, uh, if I were to be a passenger, I'd know your training has gotten you through a whole lot worse than what you're likely to see in the south, in the northeast part of the country. <laughs> yeah, it's it's different here. Weather's definitely different, so we have different challenges. Um, one nice thing here is that there's a lot of airports. If we need to go somewhere, there are lots of options. In Alaska, there just aren't. No, so, um, you know, and, and a step back to, to Veritas and how you helped us, the online school was a blessing for our family. That's great. Uh, my kids didn't always think so because we're four hours different time zones. So we told them we promised we would not make them start class before 7 a.m. But so uh, we had to choose our classes uh, Based upon that, I was not going to, you know, kill them over that because, you know, if they had they get up and go to class at 7 a.m., it does, it's not light for four hours. So <laughs> it was pretty brutal. Yeah. So, yeah, when it when it when daylight's a part of the factor, it can be very, very difficult. We do have the Chinese families and uh, Australian mm -hmm. families that sometimes are taking classes at two in the morning and things like that. But at least they know what they're getting into there. The idea of 7 a.m. and not having daylight uh, to start is, is no fun. That's great. So uh, you have uh, uh, these memories. Where is Arctic Barnabas today? Are they continuing the same? Have they expanded some? Where are they? What are they looking for? Maybe we've had, we've actually had, let me just say this. We've had, uh, I don't know of any women. We've had young men become commercial pilots having graduated from our online school. Uh, and it's been mm -hmm. fun. There've been occasions where they've come to any of your gathering and I've taken them flying and it's connected, been built a connection. Uh, but uh, we've had pilots come out of it. And I know that it, there have been occasions where we've had students go get their commercial pilots, excuse me, their private pilot certificate while a student, and we give academic credit for that. So let people, I want to let people know that that's a possibility. If you're in a diploma program, we'll give you credit if you get the certificate while you're uh, in school with us. But what, what can you tell us about Arctic Barnabas today? Yeah, they're doing very well. Um, they're, oh, I, I don't know exactly how many families they are, but, um, and I'll take a step back. They're not an actual flying ministry. They're a ministry that has to do flying to accomplish their mission. Sure. And so that's why they fly. And that they take the, the gentleman that took my spot, his name is Jason, he's doing a great job. And we still talk quite often, just consulting different things back and forth, but they're doing really well. Um, they do offer internships. They love having interns. 
Um, and so that would be a possibility as well. I mean, it's the website is arcticbarnabas.org. Uh, so that stuff is listed on there. There are videos of different things that uh, we do, uh, hold retreats. They're always looking for volunteers and help. And it's a, and you know, people can run through the mission, like do the financial part through the mission. And especially if someone's interested in aviation, that they will add that component in. And, and and take them out even uh, if they're a pilot you know every you know the guy who runs who is the aviation manager is a instructor you know he can he can log some Alaska time kind of thing so um but get a excuse me get a little taste for for what it's like up there yeah well it, it is definitely a different world when I was there it was summertime and it was warm I remember it because it was just past peak season for salmon fishing, and uh, I wanted to go salmon fishing. You were kind enough to oblige, but you warned me that we were uh, at the end of the season, and that was true. We didn't catch much, but uh, it was fun. Yeah, to we do. caught some half rotten salmon. Yeah, they were they were not healthy. But I don't know I if the dog. I don't know if the dog would have ate those. To be well, honest, with you. but I remember your wife had some good frozen ones, and those yep. you know, it, it was nothing like Alaskan salmon. Yeah. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today and showing another view of what it's like to be connected to Veritas and be part of uh, what we do while serving people that really, uh, it's hard for us to realize that people live in places that don't have roads to get to. Uh, truly yeah. remarkable to think about. And to serve them the way that you did was was really a wonderful thing. Thank you for your service. Well, thank you. I mean, it was a pleasure. Um, we uh, we appreciate what Veritas enabled us to do. My wife and I are both educators, but Veritas enabled us to give our kids uh, an education that we didn't necessarily, I would have had to educate myself pretty thoroughly to give them the education that you gave. And so that enabled me to, to do the job that I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so great. That, that was a blessing for us. Well, thank you. Paul Hadfield, former Bush pilot with uh, Arctic minister, Arct- Arctic Barnabas and uh, dear friend of Veritas. Thanks for all you do, Paul. Thank you, Marlon. I'm sure we'll see each other at some point here. Very good. Folks right. who joined us for Veritas Vox, the voice of classical Christian education. Thanks for joining. Thanks for being here.